Hey, this is Jim Fleming, and this is the Stuart Heights Fleming Sunday School Class Podcast. Here, you will find recordings of our weekly Sunday School Class, as well as a few other teaching opportunities I get at my church. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your Bible study, to replace your weekly church attendance, or to be your sole source of spiritual instruction. Go to church for that. This podcast is for members of my class who happen to miss a week here or there and don't want to fall behind. But before you listen to this episode, you may want to go to teachings.gym314.com and download student or teacher handouts, as well as any PowerPoints, so you can follow along visually and see what we saw in class, as well as take some notes. Thanks for listening. Come back often, and feel free to add this podcast to your favorite podcast app. I'd recommend Overcast. Now, let's get to this week's lesson. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Sunday School. Let's go ahead and jump right in. If you got your Bibles, we're in Romans chapter 9. We have been uh, looking at a couple of different sections of Romans the last uh, six and a half months. So we've looked at righteousness introduced, righteous wrath. Uh, this topic is going to come up again today as we look at a couple texts. Uh, saving righteousness and then righteous freedom is the big section we just came out of. Uh, today's section begins in Romans 9. And today's text is the second half of Romans 9, 1 through 29. So we'll read that text uh, and then talk about the second half of that text because we talked about the first half last week. All right. Everybody in Romans 9? You should be really familiar with where Romans is in the Bible at this point, right? Like, if nothing else, your Bible will automatically follow into Romans. Doug Doug saved Sunday school this morning. So one of the things that I do when I get here in the morning is I go into the office and I begin the printing process, which is printing your handouts, printing the weekly update, printing any other thing that needs to be printed. Every document printed flawlessly this morning, except for my teacher notes. I tried it on two different computers, three different times, nothing. So we're going to exercise those printers after the morning services this morning, and then uh, I'm going to go office space on them, and then we'll get new ones. So we'll be with that. We'll transition from that to Romans 9. There we go, right? All right, Romans 9, 1 through 29. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing, unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time, next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. 
And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived uh, children by one man, our fourth father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So last week we looked at the first uh, 13 verses of this text, those first uh, two paragraphs. Today we're going to look at the last three paragraphs with the quotes there. Uh, we talked about several different aspects last week, uh, but just to make sure that we've got a good little reminder, uh, a couple of reviews, all that God does is good, all that God does is right, and all that God does is holy. Last week we also talked about contradiction does not equal complexity. They are not the same thing. Uh, I, ha I just have two shirts on today, so you won't see me disrobe in any way, shape, or form. If you want to know what that's about, then you can check the podcast. Uh, so contradiction does not equal complexity. Those two things are not the same. There are lots and lots of complex things in the Scripture. A lot. There are no contradictions in the Scripture. There's a huge, huge difference between those two things. So last week we also talked about staying on the cart path. Uh, there are places, uh, it, that, that verse, uh, anybody remember the verse that we were talking about when we were talking about staying on the cart path? Verse 6, it's not as though the word, the logos of God, has failed. The word failed there means dropped away or driven out of its course. So this is not as if God's word has gotten off course somewhere or God himself has gotten off course somewhere and he has landed the golf cart up on the golf course. That, that, is, that is not how this, uh, this chapter 9 is functioning. So we talked about last week uh, Genesis 21 and Genesis 18, Genesis 25, Malachi 1. We challenged the idea that does Paul really know the Old Testament? And what did we find? He knows the Old Testament. He knows the Old Testament so well he can have a conversation with you and weave in parts of the Old Testament 
and it really just kind of sounds like a normal conversation, right? If I hadn't said the word quote once when I was reading through Romans 9, you might not have picked up on the fact that he was actually quoting the Old Testament. Uh, And this is one of the things that I really, really love about some of our modern translations is that they will make the Old Testament quotes either in italics or set offset in the margin somehow to kind of trigger visually for us, hey, we're quoting something that happened somewhere else, which I think is spectacularly helpful. I grew up uh, using the King James and everything was Every verse was a new paragraph. Every verse was a new paragraph. And it, it broke up the flow of reading longer passages of Scripture. And it also made it very difficult because I had to go look at all those little numbers in the, the raised. You know what I'm talking about? The numbers and the letters. You go look at the margin. Is this a quote? Yes, this is a quote. All right. That's helpful. So that, some, some very uh, typographical things that assist us uh, as we go through reading specifically uh, Paul because he quotes so much Old Testament. So I think I started on your handout there with a review of week 25's homework. That was last week. Uh, So we wanted to write down what Romans 19 through 24 says and think about the implications of those statements. So literally it was just, what does the text say? And then we'll kind of meditate on, so what's the ramifications of that? Because there's some pretty serious ramifications of that. And then if you wanted extra credit, you could review Exodus 33, Exodus 8 and 9, Isaiah 28, 29, and then the whole book of Hosea. Because we should just read the whole book of Hosea every once in a while, just to stay grounded in uh, the reality that God's ways are not our ways. Uh, And the thought to keep in mind as you were going through and doing all that is that God never got off the cart path. His plan never got derailed, no matter what happened. And if you think about the reality of trying to design a system that would accommodate and overcome and use and demonstrate the glory of the designer through thousands of years of human effort of sinfulness, it's really quite amazing, right? So let's just all stop and just praise the Lord for a second in the fact that he is unbelievably amazing at planning. And, because you may work with somebody who's a really good planner but might not be a good doer. Anybody know anybody like that? Like, I come up with all these great plans, but they're in the drawer over here. And there's nothing actually can He's not just a great planner. He is a flawless executioner. Every time. It's beautiful. So not just the planning, but also the execution aspect of this as well. So we're going to start today in verse uh, 14. And we'll kind of make reference to a couple things as we go through. So Romans 9, verse 14. So what shall we say? So this is a future tense. So we are, we're thinking about the future. What shall we say then? Paul's teeing up a hypothetical question that his listener might be thinking about. Because remember, this letter would have been read to people who are listening to it. So he's asking them questions to keep them engaged. Because if you've ever listened to somebody read a 45-minute document, you, you may need some active dialogue skills to kind of stay focused as you go through. So, so what shall we say then? Is there injustice? And this is legal injustice. Is there any legal injustice on God's part? What's the answer? No. So that was really weak. Let me ask you again. Is there any legal injustice on God's part? No. We are sometimes tempted to say, when we look at the New Testament and the way in which Jesus lives things out, and the way in which God works things out, that Jesus and or God somehow violated parts of the Old Testament law. That is not a true statement. 
Is there any legal injustice? When Paul is saying legal injustice, what legal document is he referring to? The law, right? The only law that he really studied. This wasn't like he studied civil law. No, the Old Testament law covered civil law. Well, was it he studied religious? Well, no, it, it covered religious law too. It was all aspects of their legal framework were covered in the Old Testament law. And there was no injustice on God's part. So, now Paul transitions from this kind of generic family, uh, genetic offspring in verses 1 through 13 into very specific examples. We're going to name names, right? This is what everybody gets terrified when Daryl preaches. So we're going to name names and give examples of what he is describing here. So the first one up, who's the first example? He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy on, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You're like, okay. All right. Does it feel okay that the sovereign king of the universe can make up his mind on his own? We feel pretty safe making that statement. I feel pretty safe making that. I think that's a pretty safe statement. Okay, so let's read that statement again with that in context. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Okay. Anybody disagree here? Going to give opportunity for objections. Because he's about to smack them down. All right. (laughs) Verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will. And look at the definition here. To determine, to choose, to prefer, to wish, to be inclined about, to delight in, to desire, to intend, to list, to love, to mean, to please, or will. So it's not about what I want to do. Or, what? Exertion. Did I put the Greek word in there for you? It's treko, T-R-E-C-H-O. And if I say treko, you go, you saying trekkie? Nope, but it's really similar. It's where we get our English word trek from, and it's to walk. It's not about walking. It's not about wishing. So it's not about the thought or the action of mankind. So it's not on human will or human exertion, but on who? That was weak. But on who? Like literally, it's open book. But on who? God, God, yes. Who has what? Mercy. Mercy. Because he just defined in verse 15, he's the one who's going to determine who he has mercy on and who he has compassion on. And the word for mercy and compassion there, they don't even have the same root word, but their definitions are almost identical. They're just like kissing cousins, just really, really similar words. Uh, So, verse 17, for the scripture says, now, who's he? That was on me. That wasn't you. I I brushed the pack, so don't panic, Anna Grace. Anna Grace is my tech support today. Dave Barber is off with his family in uh, Detroit, uh, separately and independently from the church uh, trip, which I think is shocking statistical unlikelihood. Sorry, that's where my brain goes every time I see one of these. Like, what's the statistical happens to that? I don't know. It's, it's, it's a long shot. So Anna Grace is running point for us today. So thank you, Miss Anna Grace. I appreciate that. I'll edit all that out of the podcast. Don't worry. Uh, so the scripture says, now, he's just described, and now he's going to give the, you know, the one-two punch. So this is coming from Exodus 9.16. The scripture says to Pharaoh. So who was Pharaoh? I put it in your notes. Who was Pharaoh? He's the king of Egypt, right? Was there more than one Pharaoh? 
Yes, there were a whole bunch of Pharaohs, right? Which one was this? The one that was alive when Moses was alive. Yes, he had a name that I cannot pronounce. I've tried and tried and tried. I cannot do it. Um, it's Egyptian. I know a little bit of Greek and a little bit of Hebrew. I'm not getting into Egyptian. I ain't got time for that. So, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up or resuscitated you or uh, roused you fully that I might show or indicate my power and I am so disappointed that I did not reach out to you and tell you to please bring Andrew today. Because do you know what the Greek word is? Dunamis. It is dunamis. God raised up Pharaoh to show whose power? God's power. Not Pharaoh's power. So please, please, please understand there is a spectacularly beautiful theme in the Old Testament of God raising up nations and individuals and bringing them low, sometimes literally to dust, just to demonstrate the power and the glory of God. So, when we fall in love with things, let's please make sure they're the right things. They're the things that are going to last in this universe, not things that might perhaps one day be brought low. Are you hearing what I'm not saying? Yes, good. Let's make sure our priorities are in order. Verse 17, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my dunamis in you, and that my name, this is the God, that my name might be proclaimed, declared, or preached, or shown to have significance in all the earth. So then, so he's going to circle back and say the same thing, He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. And you say, why would he use this word hardens? Well, do you remember what happened to Pharaoh in the Old Testament? What happened to Pharaoh in the Old Testament? I'm picking up my water bottle. Who hardened his heart? Who else hardened his heart? It was a tag team effort, wasn't it? And who was first? I think order matters here. Pharaoh. Pharaoh started. And then God comes in. And then Pharaoh comes in. And then God... And then it's just this... I don't know if you've ever seen... you ever seen WWE... Where they tag and then somebody else jumps in and they fight for a little while and they tag. This is the story of Pharaoh. It's he hardened his heart and then God hardened his heart. And he hardened his heart and God hardened his heart. And he hardened his heart and God hardened his heart. And guess what he ended up with? A hard heart, right? This is not rocket science. Was that part of God's plan? Yes, it was. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, this is an interesting word, this Greek word for hardens there. I think it's only, there's a couple, there's a root of it that's used a couple of the times in the scripture. But this is actually a really old word. Um, The Greek physicians Galen who lived about 200 years after Jesus, and the Greek physician Hippocrates, who lived about 400 years before Jesus, both in their medical writings used this particular word, this hardening word. And the idea was, if you had something on your body that was harder than it was supposed to be, this was the word that you would use to describe that. Okay, so he's taking a medical term to describe Pharaoh's what? Which I think is pretty brilliant. Because if you're going to describe the heart, maybe you use a medical term. So there's that. 
So he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist or who can withstand or oppose his will? So let me ask, ask this question. Who can oppose God's will? Thank you for your answer. I appreciate that. <laughs> it was the exact right answer. Nobody. You cannot oppose him. Now, you can think you can. You can, th- you can think you're driving your golf cart wherever you want to drive your golf cart. I promise you, God's will is being done. He, he will have what he will have. Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back or reply against or contradict or dispute to God? Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and you asked a question and you really were not looking for an answer? Like you, you, I'm asking a question. I'm trying to make a point to you. And then somebody responds back. And you're like, nope, that was not the right response. You should have just kept quiet. Um, Josh and I had lunch a couple days ago and Job came up. And I think Job is a fantastic example of this. Um, Job asks a lot of questions, and his friends come along and ask a lot of questions. They make a lot of really spectacularly bad theological statements, which is why whenever I see somebody use a verse from like chapter 5 through 36 of Job as theological justification for something, I go, like really, really good odds, it's wrong. Like, y'all know there are lies in the Bible, right? There are things that are not true about God that people who didn't understand him said out loud. And the Bible properly documents and get the, gets those right so that it can correct and fix that bad theology. But at the end of the book of Job, there's a Q&A session. Does anybody remember who the two participants in the Q&A session were? Job and God, yes. And who did the cueing? God did the cueing, right? And I would challenge you to go and read through God's questions and see how many you could answer. Because I have yet to get to double digits. (laughs) I think I got an idea on about four or five of them. Like, I feel pretty good that I, I I think I'm on good scientific or theological ground answer, but I can't get to ten. Because there's just, they're unbelievable. Because who... Are we, are you, it's us, who are we, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? The, molder, the, the molded word means just the thing formed. It's whatever you can form. So I'm going to take a little liberty with that this morning. Will it say to its molder, its shaper, its fabricator, its former, why have you made me like this? Now, y'all know what I'm about to do, right? What am I about to do? Smell that. That's excellent. That's pretty good, isn't it? You don't smell that, Chris? Smell that. Uh, do I have to? You do you that? have to? <laughs> this smells good. This was made this morning. You, Tim, Tim the Younger wants to smell too. That's pretty good, right? Now, um, I'm getting better at this. And this is a pretty good one. I made this one yesterday, and I baked it this morning. It came out of the oven at about... 7.30, 7.35. So it has cooled appropriately. Like literally, this is the right time to eat it. So I have a question for you. Does this sourdough bowl that looks so, so good have any right to say to me, the one that formed it, why have you made me thus? No. Well, first problem is it, if it starts to talk, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> Right, so let's just establish that, really. <laughs> Miss Sherry's like, uh, let's establish a couple of... Yeah, exactly, I understand, understand. 
So I want to give you an analogy. There is a bigger gap between me and my creator than that thing and me in creative ability. My creator knows exactly what he is doing every time. Me, I went through a couple sourdough bowls that didn't really look like this. They kind of flattened out a little bit and didn't have the right coloring on the top. And uh, You see, Mr. Arlo, you see that thing that kind of pops up right there? You know what that's called? That's called an ear. It's supposed to have ears. That's the sign of a really good baker. <sighs> yeah, I'm not dropping it, no. <laughs> I'll drop something over here, but no, I'm not dropping this. <laughs> so let me ask you a question. Who owns this? Come on, who owns it? You do. I own it, right? Why? You made it. Because I made it. Let's read Romans 9. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded? Will my sourdough bowl say to Jim, Why have you made me like that? Do you see how ludicrous a question that is when we put it into something that we can actually say? This is the same level of ludicrousy, craziness, um, of me, Jim, asking God, why have you made me like this? Has the potter, the Greek word is uh, keramos, looks like ceramic, that's why it's there. Has the potter no right or authority or jurisdiction or liberty or power or right or strength over the clay to make out of one lump to make out of the same lump one vessel, a skuos, for honorable or profitable use and another for dishonorable use. So let's talk about Greek pottery for just a second. So when Jesus wanted a pot, he just went down to Walmart, picked up a pot off the shelf, and went back to his house, and he had a pot, right? Now, how did they get pots? They made them, right? There was a potter who made the pot out of clay. And if the potter knew what the pot was going to be made for, the potter could actually put some design emphasis into this pot. Now, there were some pots that were used for honorable purposes, to put food, like, say, a sourdough bowl into. This would be an honorable use. There were some pots that were made for dishonorable use. Okay? So, no running water in the house at this time. So if you need something for dishonorable use, can you figure out what we might be talking about? Oh, yeah. Okay? All right. Who determines... Who made, the, who made the pot? The potter makes the pot. Who gets to decide what the pot's used for? Potter does. Does the potter have a right to make one pot for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? Yes. So, this is where Sunday school takes a sidestep. And I'm going to do something that's going to make some of you very, very angry. Because I made this sourdough bowl for a very specific purpose today. A very specific purpose. Because it is mine. And I made it for the purpose of throwing it away. 
Did I have the legal right to do that? Can you sit back and judge me for that? Sure, absolutely. Oh, no, it was not overcooked. Oh, no. No, no. She is... They're actually better because it cooks more thoroughly if you get a little brown on top, so it's okay. Oh! I'm glad this is pre you. Because I know where this is going. There we go. There we go. She's throwing down hard on me today. That's awesome. Woo! Getting warm in here, Miss Darla. So let me ask you the same question again. Did I have the legal right to do what I did? Okay. Does God have the legal right to decide how to use the vessels that he makes? Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to wrestle with this one. I want you to struggle with it. I want you to be like, who was it, Jacob that wrestled? And how did he walk away? Limping. Some of us are going to limp for a while with this one. So let's read the text. Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one another for dishonorable use? What if God, because some of you think I'm going way too far with what I just did. What if God, desiring to show or demonstrate his Wrath. This is the same wrath that we talked about back in Romans 1 and Romans 2. And to make known or to declare his power has endured or borne or carried with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, I felt at this point in the lesson that we would probably have a very heavy emotional tone. So I wanted to make sure that we understood what the word fitted means. All right? This is for you, Jules. So who is this? It's Thor. Yes, it is. And and now some of you know, some of you have... um, Know the difference when you see someone wearing a good-looking suit that is fitted well and a suit that is not fitted well. You've seen the suit that's not fitted well. Somebody either gained or lost a bunch of weight and it's kind of flopping around or it's the uh, big man in a tiny suit. You know, it, lots of ways this could go. You're going to get movie quotes all day. It's okay. Here's what this word means, this word prepared. It means fitted. There's your blank. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience? This was not a quick thing. Vessels of wrath fitted or prepared for destruction. Why would Paul use a word like this? I don't know. Maybe because he sowed things. S-E-W-E-D. He sowed things. Like he was a 
tent maker. He took goat's hair, this black fine goat's hair that grew in the mountains where he was around, and they would weave this together so tightly that it was waterproof. And you would sell these to travelers, and they would have a tent that you could go out, and it would be fitted very well together so that you could be safe in the elements. Paul knew what he was talking about relative to sewing terms. So it was fitted together for what? For destruction. See, some of y'all think I went too far throwing that sourdough bowl away. In order to make known the what? The riches of his glory for who? For the vessels of mercy. Which he has prepared beforehand. This is the word to fit up in advance. This is the word that means uh, the green jacket that they give to the guy at the Masters that wins. You know it fits every time when they put it on him. You know why? Because they got his measurements beforehand and they had one ready to go. And it fit him like it was supposed to fit. And man, it looked good. Does this make sense? Because God is in the fitting business. Verse 24, even as even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, and this is Hosea 2.23. We're not going to have time to get to anything in Hosea, which I think is awful, but it is what it is. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. Now, the thing I do want you to know is Hosea had a son named Loami, and his name meant not my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. Hosea had a daughter named Lo-Rama, means not pitied or not loved. And I will call beloved. Now, who did Hosea have this son and daughter with? Gomer. You're like, no, 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 not, not that Gomer. Not the black and white Gomer from television. The hooker prostitute Gomer who repeatedly ran away and cheated on him over and over and over to the point he had to go and buy her off the prostitution auction block. What? Yes. He went and bought her back, which is a beautiful picture of what God does to us when we rebel and run from Him and do not do what we should. So those who are not called my people, I will call my people. This is good because we were not originally called His people. To her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. We were wretches before Jesus, folks. And in the very place, in the Greek word is topos, it means topography. In the very spot where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And as Isaiah cries out, or shrieks, or screams aloud concerning Israel, though the number, the arithmetic of the sons of Israel, as the sand as the sea... Only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And if you think, well, we're pretty good on our own. (laughs) No, we're not. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts, if the Lord of armies had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So you say, well, what do we like without God, Sodom and Gomorrah? Like, Oh, did that turn out well? No, it did not turn out well, right? All kinds of awful, awful results from this. So, 
We're going to quickly jump down to the application and the personalization. I've got about three times as much stuff as I've shared today in my notes. So if you're interested in learning more about this, go to that website at the bottom, stewartheights.org slash Sunday School. So what's the point? All right. So God is sovereign. S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N. Sovereign. I'm going to give you a tip. It fits him well. His sovereignty fits him very well. So what do we do with that? Well, I'm going to submit, number one, personalize, submit to his sovereignty because his sovereignty does not fit me. As much as I would like to say that I could fit into Hemsworth's jacket, like it would fit me, but it would also need some stuffing because like him, right? I mean, it, <laughs> much bigger. It's just, it's going to like be flop. It's not going to be good. And when, when I try to fit into God's sovereignty, it doesn't look good or feel good or work either. This is the way this works. Number two, God sovereignly chooses and it fits him. So I'm going to submit to his present sovereign choices because sovereignty doesn't fit me. And then number three, what's the point? God has been sovereignly choosing and it fit him in the past too. This is what Paul is demonstrating. That this is not a new thing. Election and choosing on God's part is not a new thing. It is something that has been happening and been happening and been happening and been happening. So number three, submit to his past sovereign choices because sovereignty never fit us in the past either. Now some of you are going, Jim... You have really harped on one half of this equation. That's exactly right. I have really harped on the God-choosing side of this. And, it's not a but, it's an and, and man has a choice. And I know I have a choice, not because I feel like I have a choice, or because I want to have a choice, or by... It's America, I get a choice. I have a choice because Jesus said I have a choice to choose to repent and trust or to choose not to repent and trust. And there are those that spend their entire lives trying to reconcile how God can choose and how man can choose. And I will tell you this. Here's where I land on this. They are both right. And somehow God, in his beautiful, wise complexity, makes both able to be true at the same time. And he never once has called me to be a reconciler of his truth. Reconciler of relationships? Absolutely, but not of his truth. So if you want to struggle with that, struggle. If you want to grapple with it and walk away limping, grapple with it and walk away limping at the greatness and grandeur of God. But don't let that discourage you. Because ladies and gentlemen, we have work to do. Because there are people who have not heard the name of Jesus. So that's the Sunday school lesson for today. I've been pumped about Romans 9 for a long time. And yes, the five-second rule does apply, but it's been way longer than five minutes now. So there's that. All right, so there's a weekly update at your table. If you will make sure that your name is at the bottom of each one of those pages, that would be great. Uh, Just a weekly update page, that would be great. Uh, Share your prayer requests, and then you are dismissed. Thanks for coming today, guys. (laughs) 